One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is the Den of Geek podcast, featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com, as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is episode 20, the early edition of G News for November 2018, in which we take a look at news pieces from just about every area of the Den of Geek website. And we have for you our bonus item, which is an interview with the co-author of The Jekyll Island Chronicles. His name is Steve Nedvedek, and we talked to him at New York Comic Con, so we'll be sharing that with you later in the podcast. But let's go ahead and dive right in with the news from the first part of November. All right, cool, Mike. And I want to start by saying that Tony Sokol's article, The Beatles in Defense of Revolution Number no. 9, is much more than a treatise defending a Beatles piece that casual listeners instantly dismiss as a cacophony of noise and yeah. I, I, I know you're familiar with it yeah it's a weird one <laughs> yep now tony also provides a quick lesson in some of the more esoteric musical influences of john george and paul all right so in 1970 john lennon acknowledged as the piece's main composer told rolling stone that the song was just like a drawing of a revolution whatever that means. The <laughs> Beatles were among the first pop musicians to employ tape loops. And according to Lennon, he used about 30 loops and fed them onto one basic track. Now, Revolution Number no. 9 began recording on May 30th, 1968, and Lennon finished the final live mix on June 20th using machines in all three Abbey Road recording studios. And you can hear the tape run out at the 5 minute 11 second mark forcing Lennon and Harrison to add some more overdubs, but it's the longest track that the Beatles have officially released running more than eight minutes, which tops the seven minutes, 11 seconds of Hey Jude, which is obviously a more traditional Beatles song. Right now it should come as no surprise that a number of arguments ensued regarding the wisdom of a song that would likely confuse and perhaps even infuriate a good portion of the Beatles fan base. And though Revolution Number no. 9 is heavily influenced by a host of 20th century avant-garde composers running the gamut from John Cage to Edgar Varese, who was one of Frank Zappa's orchestral influences, to German Karl Heinz Stockhausen, the challenge to listeners is overcoming their prejudices. It's noise, not music, being one of the most frequently heard refrains, fails to hear the piece for what it truly is, and, and that's a musical composition. I'm only scratching the surface because Tony discusses possible meanings behind the piece, breaks it down minute by minute, section by section. And even if Revolution Number no. 9 doesn't sound like something you'd like to listen to, I urge you to check out Tony's article because of the historical perspective it provides. And I know it sounds heavy handed, maybe even pedantic, but you really can't consider yourself a serious student of music without some understanding of this groundbreaking Beatles offering. So 
check out Tony Sokol's article, The Beatles in Defense of Revolution Number 9. Right. And I really love how Tony has been branching out at Den of Geek. Uh, I think they officially now have as his title, the culture editor of Den of Geek. And so he really tackles these things with a great deal of knowledge and, and a plum. So I really enjoyed that particular piece. But speaking of culture, I'm going to dive in with a piece that comes to us from our Den of Geek UK colleagues, and that's Star Trek, Why We Can't Wait to Go Back to the 24th Century, which is a piece by Chris Alcock that really explores the culture of Star Trek and the perspective of history that it has, especially because there's been some announcements lately. And even with the success of the inarguably divisive Star Trek Discovery, CBS's announcement that it was not only renewing that show for a second season, but also, I don't know if you heard this, Dave, they're investigating a staggering five additional entries in the Star Trek canon, which couldn't help but raise a few eyebrows. Did you hear this? <laughs> I did not hear it. And, uh, you know, I'm not a huge Star Trek fan outside of the original series. Granted, they've got CBS All Access, and that's where they're going to air these but it just seems a little bit of overkill, don't you think? Exactly. And so what the network decided to do to allay the fears of franchise fatigue, which obviously that would immediately come to mind, they have the piece of news that seemed designed to elicit goodwill, especially from fans who remain skeptical of alternative takes on the original series era. And that news is that Sir Patrick Stewart is set to return as Jean-Luc Picard. And the response to this news was, by and large, incredibly positive. And the new series will be set 25 years after Star Trek Nemesis, which was the last time that Patrick Stewart was in that role. And it'll show us an older Picard whose life we were promised had taken some unexpected turns. Right. Well, we saw the older James T. Kirk show up in the first Star Trek movie. So it makes sense. I mean, he's so many people's captain. Yeah, well, I'm surprised that they're doing it as a series rather than a movie in that sense, though. But it was a brilliant casting choice, obviously, because Picard is precisely the kind of role model we need in a time when emotive, insular reactions seem to be ruling in place of rational thought and inquisitive spirit. And those are Chris's words. <laughs> but, um, you know, 1987 Star Trek Into the Next Generation debuted while the original crew, as you mentioned, Dave, were still kind of riding high at the box office <laughs> and doing their sequel after sequel. And it almost immediately went out of its way to push beyond the confines of syndicated TV, but still wanted to build on what came before under greater fan scrutiny in some cases. But Chris discusses everything in this article from the movies to the further spinoffs like Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And he even dives into the novels, which were designated as non-canon and the lore of the currently running Star Trek online game. He says, while it's likely that the lore of any new Picard series will ride roughshod over both Star Trek Online and the novels, the chance to learn how everything officially turned out for the galaxy is tantalizing. With a bit of luck, we may even see a wealth of new spinoff material that cohesively fills in the gaps between then and now. And I want to end this piece just by hearing from Patrick Stewart who made the announcement of the, his return to the role of Jean-Luc Picard at the Las Vegas Star Trek convention, and here's how he characterizes his return to the role. He may not be the Jean-Luc that you recognize and know so well, 
It may be a very different individual, someone who has been changed by his experiences. We have no scripts as yet. We're just talking, talking, talking storylines. It will be, I promise you, I guarantee it, something very, very different. All right, so he's obviously very excited to be doing this. And Chris mentioned that this kind of brings a little bit more optimism to the prospect of more spinoffs. And I hope he's right about that. Cool. Is it bad that my favorite work of Patrick Stewart is the the rum commercials that he does? (laughs) Those are pretty cool. All right. Well, let me talk a little bit about TV for my next segment. And DC fans will not have long to wait for what some are calling the most ambitious Arrowverse crossover to date. The first Elseworld trailers have appeared, and though this winter's crossover is going to feature only three shows instead of the usual four, it is going to air just before the now traditional December mid-season finales. This year's event begins with The Flash, which for this one episode only is going to air in Supergirl's Sunday night time slot on December 9th. It gets pretty complicated here. <laughs> yeah. We follow that with a Monday, December 10th airing of Arrow, and then the trilogy concludes with Supergirl, which, again, for just this episode, is going to air during The Flash's Tuesday night time slot on December 11th. So mark these down on your viewing calendar. Now, anytime a series introduces a new character, it's big news, and with the introduction of Batwoman, played by Ruby Rose, fans are going to have another DC icon to look forward to appears to be a backdoor pilot for a Batwoman series that's in development for a possible 2019 debut, so it'll be interesting to see how this is received by the fans. Well, especially since Ruby Rose is not necessarily universally loved by fans, (laughs) so we'll see. Now, Jeremy Davies is going to appear as bad guy Dr. John Deegan. John Wesley Shipp is going to make an appearance as the Flash, but not as the Jay Garrick Flash. Instead, Shipp will be there wearing his classic costume from the 1990-91 The Flash TV series. So that (laughs) should be pretty cool as well. Now, you may notice that Legends of Tomorrow will not appear in this year's crossover, and this likely helps facilitate the more street-level nature of a story that needs to introduce Gotham City and Batwoman to the Arrowverse. I actually would love to do smaller one-off crossovers with other Arrowverse shows more often, Legends of Tomorrow star Katie Lotz told reporters in July. Just bring Felicity or Cisco or whoever onto the show. I think that would be really fun, and it would be great to have Sarah and Batwoman meet. Now, I've just given you some of the highlights of this season's crossover. For more guest stars and superhero appearances, you can check out Editor-in-Chief Mike Cicchini's full article, which includes a link to the trailer, Elseworlds Arrowverse Crossover 2018 trailer, episode order, release date, cast, news, and more. And, And Mike also gives you a little bit of what you might expect from the plots of these three crossover shows. Right. And these are kind of like alternate universe type things. The Elseworlds comics titles, I remember quite fondly, um, were a little bit different where they had like Batman in a Victorian setting or like during the Crusades, that kind of thing. Um, But this is a, a cool way to just kind of go off into a tangent, if you will, and just explore what if. So, yeah, it'll be cool for for fans of these superhero shows. 
Well, I'm going to skip over to gaming news for a little bit because, Dave, I guess let me give you a quick quiz. Do you know what FPS stands for in gaming? I'm guessing it's not frames per second. <laughs> no. no, first person shooter. Exactly. How about RTS? No. You know that one? Real time strategy. And so I knew those two, but I wasn't familiar with MOBA, which is apparently multiplayer online battle arena, I believe. And that actually was a genre that started with Warcraft three. And there's news on the site that Warcraft three reforged is coming in 2019. This is a remaster of the original Warcraft three. And you know, reboots aren't always welcome in the movie and TV arena, but the original was arguably the greatest or certainly the most important real-time strategy game ever made. Not only did it lay the foundation for much of world of Warcraft's mythology, and that's a game I played extensively, but it helped reshape the real-time strategy genre with its smooth interface, incredible story, and fantastic customization options that eventually led to the birth of the MOBA genre, among other innovations. Well, now the game is being remastered as Warcraft 3 Reforged, an updated version of the game. It's got slicker 4K graphics. It's got enhanced interface options, completely reworked character animations, and an enhanced world editor. And it's likely that the final version of the game will feature even more upgrades, but we're still waiting to hear all of the details. So I'm sure Matthew Bird will be updating this article as time goes by. But the original Warcraft 3 also had the exceptional Frozen Throne expansion pack. And guess what? That's in there too. So this is kind of like taking a game that is extremely well favored in people's memories. It's extremely replayable anyway. And to play it with updated graphics and just seeing it in a nicer setting, I think it's a pretty cool idea as things go on. Honestly, as long as you get to play it in the same way you did before, like on a PC or that kind of thing, rather than what Blizzard is doing with Diablo, making you play it on a, on a phone. So I like this idea. Yeah. And as you said, with the improved graphics and improved technology and interface, I mean, why not? Yep, exactly. And as a bonus, you can advance order the spoils of war edition, which includes all of the content in the base game, as well as some free Warcraft-themed gifts in other Blizzard titles. The highlight of those gifts seems to be a meat wagon mount <laughs> for your World of Warcraft character. Won't that be nice? At present, the special and regular editions of Warcraft 3 Reforged are expected to be released sometime in 2019. So something to look forward to. And I might have to dive back into the vault. I only played Warcraft 2, and I played World of Warcraft, of course, but, but this one seems like it might be worth uh, diving back in. All right, sounds good. And, and speaking of looking forward to something, it's the evening of November 15th as we record this podcast, one week before Thanksgiving. And even though I'm well aware of the laws prohibiting talk of Christmas before Turkey Day, <laughs> I mean, everybody else ignores this one, so I'm going to as well. Since so many genre actors seem to pop up in Christmas movies, then I just figured, what the hell? <laughs> well, exactly. And plus, people might be listening to this at a more appropriate time, even yes. though they were recording it early. <laughs> yes. Now, the Den of Geeks staff has assembled a list of Christmas movies and television specials that are going to air in the coming weeks. So here we go with a few of my favorites. As we speak, the Hallmark Movies Channel and the Hallmark Channel have begun. <laughs> Your favorite. <laughs> They're Christmas movie marathons, running films every two hours. And 
Fans of the librarians can check out Rocky Mountain Christmas starring Lindy Booth, a.k.a. Cassandra <laughs> Killian, which is going to air Saturday, November 17th at 5 p.m. on Hallmark Movies. And we had a great interview with her yeah. a few months back. And you know she loves doing these uh, Christmas movies. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think we interviewed her. Yeah, we talked about it. Right before last Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> Then, of course, there's 2017's A Bad Mom's Christmas, starring Mila Kunis and Kristen Bell. That sounds fun. Both of whom must deal with their own mothers showing up unexpectedly for the holiday. And I'm not saying the mothers put any undue pressure on their daughters to roll out the perfect Christmas, but yeah, they kind of do. <laughs> yeah. This one's going to air December 1st at 8 p.m. and it's going to be on Showtime. Okay. Now, the classics begin airing fast and furiously in December, and no, that franchise doesn't have a Christmas movie. <laughs> so be sure to check out A Christmas Carol on December 2nd at 8.30 a.m. on Turner Classic Movies. And if you haven't seen the original Christmas Carol, I don't know what to tell you. If you don't know <laughs> Dickens' story of Ebenezer Scrooge, then a lump of coal in your stockings is most appropriate. <laughs> And if you're in the mood for a little animation, TBS is going to be running How the Grinch Stole Christmas on Thursday, December 6th at 8 p.m. Preparing for the Grinch movie that's coming out, maybe. Yes. December 8th at 8 p.m., TCM is going to air the 1942 classic. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Holiday Inn starring Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. And it's one of these movies that my wife gets excited about and I act all grumpy that I don't want to watch it and I secretly love it. Is that the one that has him singing White Christmas? I believe so, but it's the one where their former general has basically a, a ski lodge that's going to go out of business. That's it, yeah. And, okay. That's the one. <laughs> right. And if the closing scene doesn't bring a tear to your eye, then my friend, you are a Grinch. <laughs> And then, of course, there's a modern classic, 2003's Love Actually, starring Hugh Grant, Liam Neeson, Andrew Lincoln, Emma Thompson, Kira Knightley. I mean, who isn't in this feel-good movie? You can check that out December 2nd, 4.30 p.m. on TBS. And while that should be enough to get you started for literally dozens of holiday films, check out the Den of Geek article, Christmas movies and TV specials, full 2018 schedule all right a great list to check out and uh, my movie piece uh, covers something else that's coming out in the holidays and so if you're into heist movies like i am you might want to check out david crow's review spoiler free of course for widows he calls it viola davis 
heist movie has real sting. Nice. He gives this four out of five stars. And he says that before even the opening credits are over, Viola Davis's Veronica is a widow truly aggrieved at the loss of her husband, Harry Rawlings, played by Liam Neeson. And the story that this movie has is a pretty cool one. It's got uh, Harry Rawlings, the character, as the top thief in Chicago, which is probably why when his van blew up during a job gone wrong, the Chicago police just kind of stood by and cracked jokes. But that fire also took out Harry's crew, which leaves a hole in each of the other younger widow's wife. For Linda, played by Michelle Rodriguez, her husband was also a deadbeat gambler who bet the mortgage on her clothing store, which is also now the only livelihood for her young family. And then you've got Elizabeth DeBecky's Alice, who is reveling in an unspoken relief that her abusive beau is gone. But as someone trained by her mother only to trade on her looks, she has no prospects except for her mother, who's already whispering about online arranged rendezvous, poor girl. But it's pretty much Veronica that has it the worst. She loved Harry, having buried a teenage son before and now putting the boy's father into the ground, too. And despite his leaving a penthouse full of fine things for her, they're all on the chopping block along with her actual neck because the local neighborhood tough guy gone legitimate, who's played by Brian Tyree Henry, he comes a calling because it was his $2 million in a duffel bag that burned up with Harry in the van. And while he's trying to adjust to the straight and narrow, even going so far as to run for local alderman against a dynastic family of sleazy Chicago politicians embodied by Robert Duvall and Colin Farrell, if you can believe that. That's a nice little lineup. He still needs that money to run his campaign. So he comes after Veronica and uh, she's got one month to get the money back. And of course, this is a very familiar formula, but it's just a really cool all-female cast doing this heist movie in a kind of darker more grim circumstances where all you kind of feel like they're trying to do is break even just have some kind of victory in their lives. So it's bleak, but slightly hopeful. And that's probably just all you need in a movie like this. Just a little bit of hope. Yeah. I mean, as you said, the formula is basically the same for all of these heist movies. It boils down to the cast and, and the ones you've mentioned really, I mean, you mentioned Robert Duvall and, Colin Farrell as sleazy politicians, I can definitely see that. <laughs> yeah. And that's just the minor character cast. So yeah, it's, there's just so much innate cleverness, according to David Crow, in this Steve McQueen and Gillian Flynn directed movie, because they've got these fast moving schemes. But David does say that it does get a little bit too clever for its own good. Sometimes it stumbles a fair bit in the third act. And while the heist is always a means as opposed to the end, the film's finale kind of veers into the weeds a bit with the picture trying to play the audience with several twists that, according to David Crow, this is a trademark Gillian Flynn move. <laughs> it just kind of strains credibility sometimes. So only in this case, though, because Widows is loaded from top to bottom with terrific performances and the confident swagger that comes with holding all the cards up its sleeve. So there's no reason to attempt to pull yet a fifth ace out of the cufflink, which is, I think, what Flynn tries to do. Widows hits on all other fronts just fine, according to David Crow. So if you want to read more, check out his review called Viola Davis Heist Movie Has Real Sting. It opens on November 16th. So let's go ahead and dive into our extra little piece of information. 
that came to us from way back during New York Comic Con, so you would think it wouldn't be relevant. But it is by way of the content of a graphic novel, which is very relevant to Veterans Day, Armistice Day, if you will, that just passed as we're recording this. The Jekyll Island Chronicles is a graphic novel, which is by no means mainstream, but I couldn't resist talking to one of the co-authors of this graphic novel series, Steve Nedvedek. And I wanted to talk to him for two reasons. First of all, he's a dad hobbyist along with his co-authors. They do this on the side. They, you know, they're not authors by trade, but also because this graphic novel is diesel punk superheroes. Now, are you familiar with diesel punk, Dave? As opposed to uh, I am not. So steampunk. <laughs> illuminate me. Yeah. He's going to talk a little bit about this in the interview, but the short of it is that steampunk is Victorian age with steam powered vehicles. Diesel punk is just beyond that a little bit with gasoline being part of it, but still having this alternate universe, alternate history feel. So it sounds really cool for a, a superhero comic to be set in this kind of time frame with gears and pumps and pistons and things like that. Plus, of course, like I said, it's timed for Veterans Day because the superheroes themselves are World War One vets. And the second volume in the series, A Devil's War, just came out on November 6th, and I caught up with Steve Nedvedek at New York Comic Con, so let's take a listen to the interview I had with him back then. All right, I'm here with Steve Nedvedek, and I'm so grateful you were able to talk to us today about the Jekyll Island Chronicles. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for being here. This is a tremendous opportunity and an honor. Well, now... Tell us a little bit about this, because I want to bring our listeners in on the idea that this is a superhero story of another type. Okay? Yes. It's got the Andrew Carnegie's specials, which consists of Peter Karavik, the gentle giant, Helen Huxley, an electrically charged former nurse, yep. Solomon Taylor, a former Buffalo soldier, yep. and Billy Colefield, an ace pilot for the Royal Air Force. But they're fighting anarchists, uh, at least in the first story. So tell us a little bit about this main conflict that your superheroes follow. And is it a traditional supervillain type deal or is it something else entirely? <laughs> well, we, um, we, when I say we, I'm talking about the three creators, me and my two partners, uh, Jack Lowe and Ed Kroll. We are three middle-aged dads <laughs> that uh, wanted to do something fun while we were, you know, uh, in our full-time jobs. So at night we would get together and create these stories about what would it be like if technology really kind of invaded the action hero world right after World War I? Uh, we were always fascinated by the world after World War I, which was a very different world politically. You had all kinds of technological upheavals going on. And we wanted to put a group of heroes from the war who were then rebuilt, redesigned, and enhanced by the likes of Tesla, Carnegie, Steinmetz, Ford, other inventors of that age, to go out and fight the anarchists that were really trying to blow things up. 1920 was the anniversary or uh, was the, the year that the anarchists led by Luigi Galliani tried to blow up Wall Street and more than 38 people were killed. So it's a real thing. And we just decided to put these heroes into that time frame with this technology and say, let's just have some, some fun with this. So it's an alt history, sci-fi, fantasy, <laughs> action hero adventure kind of a thing. Yeah, and so alt history has its own fan base, but there's also a characterization of this graphic novel as diesel punk. Can yes. you distinguish between diesel punk and steampunk? Yeah. So for us, you know, steampunk. If you if you think of that 
classic wild, wild west kind of a thing. The railroads are really big. Everything is driven by steam. Well, diesel is the next stage. So it's kind of after or starts in World War I and kind of extends out before you get into World War II and some of the other things that were going on. So our idea is what would happen if you took this world of technology, like what would Henry Ford's real car look like? You know, <laughs> would it be black? Would it be something that was totally different and unique and there was one of a kind? What would happen if, if Andrew Carnegie took technology and put it on steroids? <laughs> if Nikola Tesla got involved and they really tried to harness electricity in this age of industrial and invention? So it's, it's not as geary as the steampunk world. There's some of that in there, but there's, let's think more pistons, think more fuel, think more diesel. And that's what you've got. It's the post-industrial age version of Yeah, steampunk. yeah, sure. <laughs> now tell us a little bit about the powers, because you just mentioned that Tesla gets involved. I assume how that, that's how the former nurse gets electrically charged. But this yes. is basically a power suit type yes. of superhero, not a radioactive spider. No, type. no, no. <laughs> we, 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 we don't do anything mutated in our series. Book two just came out yesterday, so we're really excited about that. And they continue to battle the anarchists, and book two does include the bombing of Wall Street and all the stuff that happens. But the real heroes in the story are the World War I vets, and we're coming up on the anniversary of the end of World War I, and we still don't have a national monument in Washington to the veterans of World War I. And my grandfather fought in World War I. And so that whole time was very important to all of us as creators. And, for example, Helen Huxley, who's the nurse, she gets electrocuted in a, a freak accident as a nurse, and she begins to store energy in her body. So everything she touches, she shocks. So there's plausible stuff going on here. Mm -hmm. And then we have Tesla coming in with Steinmetz, who's a hero of the age that nobody knew, contemporary of Thomas Edison, a guy that was, like, under five feet tall. And they help Helen harness her energy. And they create a backpack for her and a suit for her that allows her to store the energy until she needs to release it against the bad guys at the right time. So she doesn't have a Midas complex. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Although it is tough for her in book two because she does begin to have conflict with, I'm a nurse and yet here I am doing harming battle others. against harming others. Yes. How do I deal with that? So you know, we've got some interesting character development things going on in book two that we're really excited about. Now, uh, one of the things that drew me to this project is because it came uh, as a result of a Kickstarter campaign. And as someone who is also a dad doing entertainment reporting as a hobby, right. you guys are living proof that the love of writing in comics can be pursued as a hobby and, and be successful. So tell us about that initial journey, how it came to be. Sure. Well, like I said, the, the three of us were just kind of looking for something to create creative to do. We said, well, what if we were to write a graphic novel? I'm the only one of the three that really kind of dabbled in drawing comic books when I was a kid, so I've got an artistic bent, but we really didn't know what we were doing. And as a result, we decided to partner with people who did. So we sponsored a class at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Savannah, and we actually brought in master's students to help us visualize this world of the Jekyll Island Chronicles. Incidentally, Jekyll Island, for your listeners, is a real place. It's off the coast of Georgia. And people should look into it. It's, it's not a reference to Dr. Jekyll kind of stuff. Anyway, we decided to work with SCAD. We got some of their students to help us visualize it. We hired two of them after they graduated to help us with the book, but we needed money to actually create the book. So we went and we did a Kickstarter campaign. It was successful. We blew the doors off our goal. And as a result of that, we were able to start book two, and we put donors' names at a certain level for the first Kickstarter into book two. 
So many of the characters named in book two are actually friends of ours or <laughs> supporters. donors, supporters that were, you know, that were giving to the first Kickstarter. So we've completed the Kickstarter. We did a pitch packet. We took it to a publisher in Marietta, Georgia, Chris Steros from Top Shelf. That's where he lives. And he comes to Comic-Con every year and has been for a long, long time. And so anyway, we showed him the pitch packet. And the next day he called me and said, guys, if you can finish this story, we'll be happy to publish it. Well, Top Shelf got bought by IDW. So now we're with IDW. And we're in the IDW booth in the back storage room doing this interview. <laughs> and here we are with book two. And that's uh, exciting because IDW is getting into entertainment as well. IDW so you never is. know if we might see it on TV uh, you know, or movies. We're keeping our fingers crossed and hopefully there's a showrunner out there <laughs> that's, that's right. listening that's interested in this age and what it would be like hey, to battle the villains. There is of, not enough cyberpunk or dieselpunk on television well, in my and opinion. And you know, and it, it is, you mentioned classic, you know, heroes versus villains. I mean, that's, that's what this is. One of the things that we didn't want to do, Michael, was set up a world where heroes were cynical and conflicted. We felt like as dads, there's a lot of that and you can take your pick. But we wanted to do something that was a little bit more classic and create a, people who knew and, and folks who were, happened to be veterans who knew who the bad guys were. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't when bad guys were high. They were, they were out in the open. They were yeah. blowing things up. So how do, you, how do you do that? What's that world like? We've got everybody from Woodrow Wilson to Lloyd George from London. We, we, a lot of our book, too, takes place in London. So if anybody's listening from England across the pond, check out book, two. There's a ton in it, <laughs> and it's real stuff. A lot of it really happened, like the creation of the Flying Squad, which look at book, two, see what that is. It's fascinating. So I, I assume that means that the names J. Moses Nestor and S.J. Miller those are, are the two, ones from the SCAD. Yes, those, those are campaign. the two students from SCAD that journeyed with us for book one and book two. And Moses is the illustrator, and S.J. Miller is the colorist. And one lives in Atlanta, and one lives in Las Vegas, and everything is done digitally, passing files back and forth. Uh, in fact, I haven't seen our colorist in <laughs> two years, but, you know, we've been in contact with him. So, you know, it's, it's really been interesting how this whole thing has developed from a hobby into an actual thing that we're excited about where people are actually buying merchandise and interested in the story. All right. Well, check out the Jekyll Island Chronicles, A Devil's Reach, which is now available. And we're looking forward to checking that out and sharing it with our listeners. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Okay, and it sounds really cool. I was able to check this novel out. He mentioned that it was had come out even back then at the convention, so you could get a hold of it if you went to that convention. But hopefully you were able to check it out on Amazon or wherever you get your books. It's also on Comixology, and it's been available as of November 6th in paperback. So check it out. So we hope you enjoyed all of the different pieces we brought to you in this edition of G News, but that's going to be it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the November 2018 late edition of G News, when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind the scenes content from your favorite TV shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.